Welcome to the second episode of the Anxious Poet podcast. I am the Anxious Poet and here is another anxious poem. The Belly of the Year The belly of the year that autumn swallowed me, left me in the dark sump of winter, oily water at the bottom of the well, no dreams of gold cities or spice roads, just dark, low-ceilinged caverns, populous with my old familiars, acting at times out of character and revealing the nature of the breach. Spring brought a ladder end, rungs slippery with moss and spread stretchingly far apart. Don't climb too fast, they say. The goddess of growth has a sickle in her hand and she stands on the chaos and drama of dying winter's pyre. And that's where spring comes from, to my surprise, but still not to my joy. The heat and green-growing summer painted its length on my morning curtains with earliness and my attempted meditations melted in the crucible of my anxiety, all returning me to autumn's guts as they spill out in a redness of pavements, and yet a resolve to open the front door, to brave the belly of the red-leaved beast, to walk my way out, solvitur ambulando. Solvitur ambulando, it is solved by walking. I've heard this saying attributed to all manner of clever people. Saint Augustine, Henry David Thoreau, the writer of the wilderness classic Walden, even the great psychologist of depth, Carl Jung. I first heard it from my therapist when I was in the middle of one of my attacks of anxiety. I think she was trying even in the thick of what my poem, The Belly of the Year, is describing, to alert me to the curative value of the simple act of walking. <clears throat> Needless to say, I didn't take much notice at first. I was so agoraphobic that the thought of the great outdoors was not appealing. In fact, it was bloody terrifying. My first big bout of anxiety was right at the end of a summer and it took me into the arms of a bitter autumn. In fact, I feel a touch of that again right now in this bonfire-studded, firework-preluded November month. I describe it as the belly of the year to echo that great mythological meme of being swallowed by a beast. As I said in the first podcast, the imagery of mythology offers a form of topographic orientation to my anxiousness. It marks out a territory for me that others have traversed and has been laid down as an inheritance to all of us fragile, struggling, yet gloriously alive human beings. Mythological themes like Jonah being swallowed by a great whale were a fascination to the mythologist Joseph Campbell. In the book The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he says this, 
The idea that the passage of the magical threshold is a transit into a sphere of rebirth is symbolised in the worldwide womb image of the belly of the whale. The hero, instead of conquering or conciliating the power of the threshold, is swallowed into the unknown and would appear to have died. Being a gloriously alive human being doesn't mean that it's easy. The hero in these stories is actually meant to be you and me. These myths are about helping the non-heroic find a brave and courageous path through the darker passages of life. The worldwide womb image of the belly of the whale. Not the worldwide web, the worldwide womb. And there are definite moments when an experience swallows you and you wonder how long this will last and will I get through it. Jonah, in the Hebrew scripture, a Jewish mythological figure, is told to go to Nineveh and preach to the non-Jews there as they are in a bad way and God can't ignore it any longer. Jonah does what many of us would when presented with a huge life challenge. He turns tail and goes in the opposite direction. How many times have I decided to drink less or even stop drinking and then found after a month or so I'm drinking more than normal? Something in our psyche reacts and produces the opposite. Jonah gets on a ship and is happily sailing away from Nineveh when a storm blows up and he has himself cast overboard to save the rest of them. Our unconscious will sometimes produce a storm that makes us pay attention to that which we ignore. Jonah is swallowed by a whale and dwells in its belly for three days and three nights. Then it spits him up onto dry land and hey presto, is right near Nineveh. The belly of the beast, or in my case, the year, knows where to deposit us. Jonah starts walking toward the great city and in fact, it takes him three days to get across it. When I was vomited out by the belly of the year, I started walking, as the poem says. I found myself, as I walked, with my anxiety in a place where I needed help. And as time went on, here is the advice that I gleaned and gave to myself. This poem is called Advice to Myself in Anxiety. Advice to Myself in Anxiety. There is no miraculous cure for all this. There is no miraculous cure for all this. Just a stubborn willingness to engage in the day as it comes not as fear makes it. The panic often rises, altering the view of the world around you, making it shimmer, not with beauty, but with the strip light of disquiet. Passes, though, and gives way to joy. Not joy unending, but fleeting. Gone when noticed. (laughs) Days of endless homecoming and eviction. Breathe slowly into this. Don't run. Stay. You are moored more firmly than you know. There is a constancy in you, not your own. 
Be kind to your running part. Trust all your story, whatever it leaks all over your curated persona. If you settle in unshielded, all will be well. Not well as in a trite, joyfully ever after, but life lived to the down dregs, drudged and diamond-like, weakening into the starry night. That endlessly constellated nocturne, which at the close of each Sisyphean stone-pushed day, intimates a mist-wrapped and unpredicted dawn. This poem is a kind of act of faith on my part. A faith in Sisyphus and the starry night. Sisyphus was a figure in Greek myths condemned to push a giant boulder up a hill only for it as he reached the top to roll all the way down again. It can feel that way, each day a terrible drudge. But I also have faith in the starry night. That's a painting by Vincent van Gogh and in the in the book the poem has a, a quote from one of his letters at the head of it. He painted the starry night, which most people probably know, uh, when he was in the asylum in San Remé, recovering from a huge bout of mental health uh, difficulties. And he saw the morning star before dawn and painted this beautiful image of the night sky. Um, and he says, these feelings that I get looking at that I do not despise implying that other feelings that he'd had, he did. When he was beginning to recover, he would go out from his asylum with a with a, an orderly and walk and paint. And that's part of the advice that I have given to myself, that to walk, to get out of the front door, brings change change that is a kind of act of faith. Walking helped me to find the constancy, not my own. In the poem, there's a line, there is a constancy in you, not your own. What is that? Well, like any poet, I'll leave it to your imagination to search inside, to forage for it. But I've found there is a constancy in me and all around me. It does seem to depart sometimes at times of high anxiety, but if I go out of the door with my walking boots on, I begin to find it. In a lovely book about landscapes, a writer called Matthew Johnson tells us that the great poet of the outdoors, William Wordsworth, according to his mate Thomas de Quincey of Opium Eater fame, walked over 175,000 miles in his lifetime. I know there was less good transport in those days, but that's a significant amount of walking. And of course, he did what any good poet will do. He turns the landscape into words. And there you have the constancy not his own. It dwelled in him all his life, and he is described as, as gathering that constancy of the landscape into a heart that watches and receives and expresses itself 
through intense imaginative feeling. That world you meet on the footpath, in the hedgerow, on the city bridge, in the bright field, in the farm returning with the cockerel on its shoulder, that is an ever-changing constancy encountered only by walking. I've just been reading a book by the BBC presenter. Uh, she does stuff like Spring Watch, Kate Humble. Not someone I warm to that much usually. She sometimes seems a little bit saccharine and anodyne. Nice as a commentator on the life cycle of bees or the feeding habits of siskins, but not a deep thinker. But when I saw the title of her book on Audible, Thinking on My Feet, The Small Joy of Putting One Foot in Front of Another, with a lovely picture of a fading leaf on the cover, I thought, hmm, great title, I'm going to give this a whirl. She is more of a deep thinker than I had imagined. She quotes two things in her preamble in the book. One is that this generation of young people is the least active in history, which is terrible, and makes me ask what of my generation passed on to them that they're so inactive. Secondly, a really good quote from a novelist called Elizabeth von Arnim. She says, Walking is the perfect way of moving if you want to see into the life of things. Walking is the perfect way of moving if you want to see into the life of things. I immediately thought of the poet Mary Oliver in the poem Wild Geese, where she talks about the wild geese flying over you as you walk through the landscape, announcing to you over and over your place in the family of things. Your place in the family of things. Walking is drawing me, all of us, into the family of things, the constancy not our own. Now, don't get me wrong here, I am not some recovered anxietist who, like a reformed smoker, admonishes all those filthy tobacco addicts from a place of moral superiority. As one of the headings in my latest poetry book, A Night Sea Journey, says, facing one storm in the dark, sea, doesn't mean there won't be another. In fact, I think I'm sailing through one right at this moment, and and in this this autumn. But I do want to keep exploring what's curative for anxiety with all its attendant maladies and, and depressions. I want to stress the active sense of that word curative, not the finality of a cure. These things in my experience are incremental and slow and it's tough when you're in the middle of a bout of something and what you really want is a quick fix. But, solvitur ambulando, it is solved by walking. Or another way, walking is curative. A few years ago, during a bad bout of anxiety, I really woke up to the truth of this Latin phrase. As I have three dogs, two Border Collies and a Jack Russell, it made all the sense in the world to get out and walk every day. Coupled with the fact that I'm in my mid to late 50s, overweight, on blood pressure medication, 
and warned a couple of times about sailing close to the wind with type 2 diabetes, this impetus to walk seemed wholly sensible. Little did I know that there were so many other effects that it might have on my psyche. This is a piece I wrote originally for a really good friend of mine called Father Daniel O'Leary, who's really ill with cancer at the moment. He wanted some of us with literary or poetic talents to contribute to an alphabetical celebration of what he called, I think he calls them heavenly habits. Movements from one state to another, uh, like the one I wrote this poem for. It's called The Lost Eden. And it was a, 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 to express a movement from feeling undeserving to blessed. He, he wanted to show how we can move from, from one place to another and we can make that a habit and that that habit would improve the quality of our life and, and the lives of those around us. I realised when the deadline was coming to produce the poem that my walking habit had probably shown me this movement more clearly than anything else. Here's the poem, Lost Eden. I put their leads on, full of begrudging. The rain is audible even through the door and the winter light is already fading. The young collie yanks the lead of my dissatisfaction, a reminder that I failed to attend to his daily training. We face the wind, heads leaning into the onrushing erosion of the blown wetness, seeming to deem us undeserving of any grace. Up the cloddy path sticking to my boots, an indictment, each squelching step, another evidence of my poor progress. Coming around the stone-built cottages and up the general, funnelling the three dogs into a yelping clutter under my tetchy feet. Out of sorts, isn't that what they call it, when the world you find meets all the low expectations you carried into it? Then we reach the head of the valley, whittling the broken end of my tether, only to look up as the clouds break. The great orb of the low sun gleams from behind the leaf-shorn beech tree, and we all stop as if music were playing. The lost Eden opens its generous gates to canine and human. We pass through into momentary, unsought, Beatitude. We pass through into momentary, unsought beatitude. Out of sorts is a, a kind of poetic understatement for anxiety. But like one of J.K. Rowling's most powerful images from the Harry Potter stories, the Dementors, creatures that suck all the joy and colour out of life, anxiety and depression act as a dismal lens through which we view our world. But the very physical act of walking can, gradually and incrementally, break through this fog and bring moments like the one described in my poem. Another priest friend of mine, Father Leonard May, who was a real mentor and father figure to me in my early twenties when I was at sea in a fatherless world, he gave me the title. I became a Roman Catholic at that age, a searcher for the meaning of everything, trying to understand what all of this was about after the trauma of my 
father's death at the age of 11 and my mother's subsequent breakdown, I found a real life raft in faith and brought it into, it bore into it with gusto. Even training to be a priest in my mid-twenties. As my life has gone on, I've found some of that faith to be far more challenging than I expected and I've lost faith in much of the institution that is the church. The terrible betrayal of children, the abuses of power and prejudice dressed up as principle are horrifying to me. But some of the deeper visions of Christianity, and in fact all the great spiritual traditions, forged in the face of human suffering and loss, and the reality of our brief stay on this tiny planet, remain powerfully rich to me. The metaphors and stories of faith are actually, I think, our human inheritance, and we abandon them at our peril. One such image was given to me by Father May one cold winter morning in his sitting room. I'd go for a chat after Mass and morning meditation. He was, for some reason that day, talking to me about his time as a Carthusian monk. He spent three years, I think after his ordination, in a monastery in Hampshire called Parkminster. The Carthusians are virtually hermits who live together. They occupy a small cottage built into a quadrangle or cloister of, uh, of cottages and spend most of the day in them. They pray the offices of the day, morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, the work in their gardens, chop wood and study. Each day they leave their dwelling, once for mass and the other time for vigils, which takes place at three o'clock in the morning when they rise, having gone to bed at about eight in the evening, and pray in the Abbey Church for two hours, chanting psalms and reciting scriptures. It is a deeply solitary life, and they only speak to one other monk once a week on a communal walk. Father May left, a due, left due to ill health. It's a fierce life, not for the faint-hearted. It did, however, shape his outlook on life, and given that he's now 94 years old, it can't have done him that much harm. This morning he began to speak of his time in the monastery and of the monk who lived next door to him who was in his 80s and fascinated Father May as to what it was he did all day. So one day he shinned up the dividing wall between their cottages and he looked over. Do you know what I saw, Adrian? No, I replied. I saw that man walking in his beautifully tended garden, and I realised that he had found it. Found what? I asked. The lost Eden, Adrian. The lost paradise. He was able to walk in the garden with God. Whew. This image comes from the first book of the Hebrew scripture, Genesis where Adam and Eve are able to walk with God in the mythical Garden of Eden, where all is well and they can share the cool of the evening together. They are naked and innocent and it's paradise. Many of us know of the serpent's temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how, when they did, they learned to split everything into subjective judgments as to whether it was good or bad. They deem their nakedness evil and they hide from the divine. Subsequently, 
they are banished and banish themselves from paradise. This monk, in Father May's young mind, had rediscovered that paradise. I resonate deeply with that idea of a sense of loss, that there was some state, some paradise, that I once knew. That as Wordsworth says, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises within us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come, from God who is our home, heaven lies about us in our infancy. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. This is from Odes on Intimations of Immortality. When I'm in a period of anxiety, I feel that keen sting of yearning for the times when I felt settled and at peace. From those days in my bedroom as a boy, before loss came into my life, reading C.S. Lewis or Tolkien and the ardour of those tales and myths of the North. We carry these intimations in the depths of our psyche. I believe, and they come out in our dreams and when we walk. That forward motion into the green woods or hills or both, or even the cityscape, offer us a backdrop for the psyche to relax and allow some of the physical pent-up adrenaline and cortisol to dissipate, to suddenly see again, with innocent eyes, a landscape or an animal, a skyscape or a bird that is revelatory of a deeper state, a more wholesome version of ourselves that is part of the natural world and not alienated from it. I love this. But not yet weary are our feet, still round the corner we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate. And though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. These are the words of Bilbo Baggins from Tolkien's fertile imagination. I think like the hobbits, we are made to walk, to move slowly through the landscape and absorb it and be absorbed by it. Isabel Hardman a political correspondent on The Spectator and someone who I have admired massively when she took time off from her work because of mental health issues and said she was doing it and tweeted about it. How brave. I'll put a link to her piece on Radio 4 about nature's effect on mental health. She says it takes her mind away from the torture chamber inside her head, especially by being methodical and dogged. She found solace in noting down the names of animals and birds and plants she sees. I talk in one of my poems of walking this same path with a slow, monastic doggedness. She witnesses to this as a powerful way to find what she calls healing for one's soul. The psychiatrist she's interviewing, when he was completely exhausted, though he hadn't realised it, 
sees on a long walk when he takes time off work a charred log and he sees himself in it burnt out. It led to huge changes in his life. This is what walking does because as he says we are animals. We are natural and we need to remember it to keep slowly and surely one step after another having the message infused into us. It's about building a pattern of thought and memory that is full of us as natural creatures, as part of a landscape, not phone-staring screen fodder. I was sent a book by a good friend, Belden Lane, when I was having a sabbatical a few years ago and trying to listen to the promptings of my soul telling me to slow down. It's called Becoming Animal by David Abram. And I love the hardback cover of the book with a dark raven on it. He says this at the beginning. This is a book about becoming a two-legged animal, entirely part of the animate world, whose life swells within and unfolds all around us. Unfortunately, I didn't read much more than that. And I'm now going back to the book and finding that what he's intimating and what I'm intimating here is a very powerful message. We can, and I have at times, walked into a better inner world, mirroring the outer one that is so real and so beautiful. Not always. Sometimes it's just miserable and dogged. But always better to do it than not, I think. A couple of days ago, I was walking through the Rivlin Valley with my dogs. It was quite bright, sunny day for autumn. And in the middle of the weir on the river was a heron standing absolutely stock still, gazing at the water flowing past him. Not bothered at all by the fact that Gabe, my older border collie, starts barking at him. He didn't flinch. And in the end, the dog gave up. And I just stood watching him and I could see his one eye pointing at me, watching me every so often, but then his attention was on the river, wrapped. And it really spoke to me about being completely absorbed in that natural world and what, what an animal, what a bird like that, their complete instinctive focus and that it just calmed me down. It immediately calmed me down and I took a photograph of him on my phone and I look at it and, and just feel, actually instinctively feel that deep focused watching. I wrote a poem a while ago called Easdale Tarn about this very thing of walking into a landscape. I'll read the poem and then I'll say a bit more. Easdale Tarn. I came back from High Easdale Tarn, having walked off all my ingratitude. A spark of sheep with earthen smell, the lone herdwick greenly chewing, willing to absorb all those spines that needle me into its own dusky pelt. The tarn, when I reached it, rippled with my own stillness, 
and then settled into the flawless reflection of the crag. On the way down again, I spilled over into the waterfall old griefs, ones I usually pinch back in my throat, leading to misery's heartburn. The winding dry stone wall, greyly slate-driven, led me down carefully into the field, where the cows lay, herdwise in the heat, sighing cuddily. A mother beast lay her brow softly on the brown vastness of her bull, as they mothered and fathered me in the afternoon's milky haze. The, the bridge over the final beck smoothed its slaten flags toward the little red postbox, and I composed all my letterly regrets to be sent to those I bruise, and a long missive of frustration to one whose help didn't. But that one was really a letter to myself. I felt the path wandering under my feet if its directness had been too brutal. But the gate to the road opened and welcomed all the scuffs my boots wear. I came back from Highesdale Tarn and my teacup was white like a new page. Easdale Tarn sits in a bowl of cragginess above Grasmere, Wordsworth's home. I'd gone for a week to listen to Father Daniel O'Leary, the priest who commissioned the, uh, the Heavenly Habit poems that led to my Lost Eden poem. He was doing a retreat about nature and all that kind of um, uh, stuff. I thought it'd be relaxing and an easing experience after a couple of years of pretty rough anxiety. But on the way up, my anxiety started playing up again. That deep-seated unease and myriad fears piling up in my mind and that belly-stretching tension. I arrived and I couldn't settle. My nights were full of difficult dreams. I resorted to photography, going out and in every break and taking photographs, trying to absorb my anxiety in an activity, but to little avail. On the third day of the retreat, we were given the whole day off. And rather than go off with friends into the lake towns, I asked the warden where I could walk. He suggested the trek up to Easdale Tarn, which is, it's not that far, but it's quite steep, I hadn't quite realised. And it was September and a bit of a heat wave. It was like 28 degrees and that, one of those Indian summer days that recall the heights of summer. So I trudged up there and it's a fair climb. I met a couple coming down about halfway up. I think they thought I needed a defibrillator. I was bright red in the face and sweaty. Um, and frankly, as the poem narrates, I felt deeply ungrateful and really pissed off with myself and everything else. And then gradually... It was like the natural world started to absorb it, to pull it out of me. And as I say, I met this sheep and it had that those big thick pelts and it just looked at me chewing away on the grass. And, and it felt like it was saying, yeah, give it me. It was willing to absorb all those spines that needle me into its pelt. 
and and everything all of the greenness of the world seemed to be pulling it out of me um and then when i got to the town which is this beautiful beautiful place there weren't many people there and and the wind on the town was rippling and then suddenly it dropped and it was as if i dropped a lot of it the stuff that i was holding into the town and i settled and then on the way down, I looked more closely and there was this incredible waterfall into a pool. In fact, people swim in it. And, and I started to think of the griefs that I'd had in my life that come out in times like that. That I think cause a lot of my anxiety. The loss of my father suddenly when I was 11 and my mother's breakdown. And my mother died. Both my parents died really suddenly. So I, I started thinking about those and... and and pouring them out instead of nipping them back, leading to misery's heartburn, as I say. I kind of let them flow. Um, and then the beautiful dry stone walls, the path went right down the side of it and it wove its way back down into the valley, carefully leading me into this field full of cows. Hot, really hot in the heat. And, and as I say in the poem, this mother cow, female cow, had her head laid right on this massive bull. And I felt them, I, I can't describe it, mothering and fathering me, fathering me. Just, just as if I'd come up with those griefs about those losses and they were saying, look, we're here. We, we are the motherly and fatherly energy in this world. And we offer it to you. And then, and then you go over this uh, flat slate bridge and there's a tiny little red post box and it just made me think keenly, God, maybe I should write to all the people that I hurt when I'm anxious, when I'm tetchy and out of sorts. And then I thought about some of the help I'd been offered and how bloody useless some of it seemed. And I got, I started getting worked up again and anxious. And then I suddenly thought, actually, you never really listened. Your therapist constantly was trying to make you listen to your anxiety, not just try and get rid of it and befriend it and find where it was coming from. So that long missive of frustration was really to me. I needed to listen. And then the path suddenly gets dead straight. And, and uh, you know, I say I w it wondered under me whether it had been too brutal because, you know, it really brought me up short. But then I got to the gate. I love gates and styles. These apertures that, that take you from one world to another. And I noticed as I was going through the gate, because I had to look down as I opened it, that my boots were incredibly scuffed. And yet the gate opened and let me through and accepted all the scuffiness of my life. And I got to, down back to the retreat centre and like all good retreat centres, they had a cup of tea waiting for afternoon tea for people with cake and all that stuff. And um, I sat down with my cup of tea and I, I just wrote this poem. It came straight out of me. And then I got to the end and I thought, what is the last line? And I looked at my white teacup and I thought, yeah, my teacup was white like a new page. 
I've I've come back from High Easdale Town and and I'm a different person. Solvitur ambulando, it is solved by walking. It doesn't mean my anxiety went away forever, but it was certainly curative. So I'm going to end with the same poem again. Thanks for listening. Easdale Town. I came back from High Easdale Town, having walked off all my ingratitude. A spark of sheep with earthen smell, the lone herdwick greenly chewing, willing to absorb all those spines that needle me into its own dusky pelt. The tarn, when I reached it, rippled with my unstillness and then settled into the flawless reflection of the crag. On the way down again, I spilled over into the waterfall old griefs, ones I usually pinch back in my throat, leading to misery's heartburn. The winding dry stone wall, greyly slate-driven, led me down carefully into the field where the cows lay herdwise in the heat, sighing cuddily. A mother beast lay her brow softly on the brown vastness of her bull as they mothered and fathered me in the afternoon's milky haze. The bridge over the final beck smoothed its slaten flags toward the little red postbox, and I composed all my letterly regrets to be sent to those I bruise, and a long missive of frustration to one whose help didn't. But that one was really a letter to myself. I felt the path wondering under my feet if its directness had been too brutal, but the gate to the road opened and welcomed all the scuffs my boots wear. I came back from High Easdale Tarn, and my teacup was white like a new page.